0: Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.26, The Dominion Outside of Massachusetts. Last time, we spent a second episode looking at the reforms in the Dominion of New England under Edmund Andros. These reforms were, by and large, hated by just about everybody inside of Massachusetts. Even amongst those colonists who were there to advise Andros, they often found the new laws repugnant and were shocked by their lack of influence over colonial affairs. It had quickly become abundantly obvious to all involved that the Governor's Council was not a representative assembly, but was rather just there to make suggestions. If Andros liked the suggestion, he would roll with the idea. If he didn't, he wouldn't. At the end of the day, it was clear that the power in the colony rested almost entirely with him. When addressing the Dominion of New England, it can at times be difficult to remember that we are not dealing with something that took place exclusively in Massachusetts. The Dominion was a conglomeration of colonies, and it extended throughout the entirety of New England and beyond. This week, therefore, the goal is going to be getting a better idea of what this means for everybody else inside of the Dominion we will examine how the other colonies dealt with the arrival of Andros and their reaction to his policies. As we are going to see today, despite the fact that Massachusetts really is the center of the Dominion world, there were a lot of colonists who were going to be part of the Dominion and not live within Massachusetts. And they are going to have a lot of different opinions about everything that is happening. For nearly all of New England, the birth of the Dominion meant the end of what had largely been decades of nearly independent rule. However, while that on the surface wasn't going to make anybody all that happy, the Dominion also marked an important opportunity. Since its founding, Massachusetts had dominated the region. The Dominion offered the other colonies an opportunity to escape the orbit of Boston, which they often resented. As much as it would be fun to believe that Plymouth, the first colony on the ground, would put up a staunch resistance to the dominion of New England, that just is not the case. Despite their decade head start, Plymouth had just 6,400 people in 1680, far below the over 40,000 that Massachusetts had by that same point. Plymouth has long held an interesting place in New England. They had no interest in becoming the Winthrop-style city on a hill. Rather, the Puritans inside of Plymouth largely sought isolation from the rest of the world. Back when the first pilgrims left Leiden to come across the Atlantic, they were looking for a place where they could separate themselves from the rest of society. And for the most part, New England had offered that. Plymouth remained largely an isolated colony and never saw, nor particularly wanted, the population growth that we see over Massachusetts. Now, none of this is to say that Plymouth was not involved in colonial affairs, as they most definitely were. Plymouth had played a major role in King Philip's War, and indeed they had paid very dearly for that war, both in terms of economic and human losses. We must also go back and look at a very serious problem that Plymouth had in relation to the other New England colonies. If you recall from last season, Plymouth had not landed where their patent had allowed. When the Pilgrims decided to settle in New England, as opposed to down near the Hudson, they were forced to come up with some way to make the claim legitimate. The solution at the time had been the Mayflower Compact. By the 1630s, the Plymouth colonists had figured out that they needed to do a little better than the Mayflower Compact in order to establish their boundaries. Well, the Compact had initially proved good enough, Now Massachusetts existed, and development was taking off to the south in the Connecticut River Valley. The Plymouth colonists realized that, once again, there were questions about the legitimacy of their colony. After all, they were running with a compact that they had personally made. There never was a grant of land or anything official outside of those who originally agreed to the document. Wanting something that was more legitimate than the original compact, The Plymouth colonists turned to the Council of New England for something a bit more formal. While they would not receive an actual charter, they did receive a land grant. It at least laid out that Plymouth had a right to exist and established their boundaries. Back in episode 1.27, I had made a comment that this was something that you should keep on the back burner. As I'm sure you have all been thinking about this for the past 30 episodes, We are now going to get to why this is such a problem. The other New England colonies had charters directly from England. New Hampshire had received their charter back in 1679, and Connecticut got their official charter from the Crown in 1662. This left Plymouth in a very precarious position. If you have been following along, you can probably guess that Andros and Company did not see the Mayflower Compact as providing the necessary legitimacy. This problem was not any kind of a surprise to Plymouth. They had tried for years to get an actual royal charter. However, they lacked the influence back in England to secure such a charter. In the eyes of the Crown, when the Dominion of New England came along, the Plymouth colonists were little more than squatters. Absorption into the Dominion of New England was anathema to everything that Plymouth had stood for. Their independence from everybody else was one of the defining features of that colony having their independence stripped and shipped to Boston was a very difficult pill to swallow. Despite this, however, Plymouth was never going to be in a position where they had much hope of fighting back. Their small population and complete lack of any actual legitimacy meant that their being absorbed into the Dominion was all but predetermined. The lack of a formal royal charter is going to come back a final time in just a few years to haunt Plymouth, following the collapse of the Dominion of New England. Down in Connecticut, we find what had become the second colony of New England. By the time of the Dominion, Connecticut had a population approaching 20,000. While that number is still just about half that of Massachusetts, it was still more than double the combined population of New Hampshire and Plymouth. Connecticut and Massachusetts had always been closely related colonies. Whereas Rhode Island was a land of outcasts, and Plymouth was an isolated haven for separatists, Connecticut remained largely in line with those same religious and political beliefs that dominated up in Massachusetts. When Edward Randolph came with news of the Quo Waranto against their charter, the Connecticut settlers were none too anxious to give up the fight. As with the case in Massachusetts, the Connecticut colonists questioned the legitimacy of the now-lapsed Quo Waranto. The outcome in Connecticut would ultimately end up being a mirror of the situation in Massachusetts though admittedly it remained less vitriolic than events to the north. Inside the government of Connecticut, there was a majority of hardliners that wanted nothing to do with Randolph or any interference from London. Meanwhile, there was that same collection of moderates who, at least on the surface, were not completely opposed to breaking up the closely held political power of the majority. The moderates viewed the Dominion as something that was ultimately going to be inevitable and thought that by getting out there and being open to the idea, they would be in the best position possible with the new guard coming into town. For many of the moderates, they must have viewed this as an opportunity to potentially usurp power from the suddenly weakened Bay Colony. Edmund Andrus was admittedly in something of a rough spot with Connecticut. He needed to play his cards carefully and treat the colony more kindly than he probably would have liked. The problem was that Connecticut was very attractive to the colony nearby, New York. New England was dependent on the trade and revenue that Connecticut brought to the table, and Andros could not risk having New York annex the colony. Andros personally knew that this fear was not without some merit. Recall that during King Philip's war, then-New York Governor Edmund Andros had his eyes on Connecticut and had even made that failed attempt to aid the war in Connecticut itself. If you'll also recall, Andros's offer of help was met with armed resistance as they made clear that he was not in fact needed. The thought that Thomas Donegan, the now governor of New York, may want to use the chaos to benefit and try to convince Connecticut to annex into the New York colony was not that far-flung of an idea. During the early days of 1687, Andrus warned the colony that a third writ of Quo Waranto had been entered, and that they were trending dangerously close to a default judgment for not having rendered an answer. The play by Andros was to impress upon Connecticut that they really only had two choices here. They could, one, submit to Dominion rule and have a say in how they entered into the Dominion, or they were going to be forced into the agreement. There really was no middle road for them to follow. The Dominion was going to happen, regardless if the colonists wanted it to or not. Beyond that, Connecticut really had zero interest in joining New York. They wanted to remain aligned with Massachusetts. Dominion or no Dominion. Andros, desperate to get things under control, undertook a tour of Connecticut in November of 1687. Part show of force, part public relations campaign, Andros traveled with approximately 60 men to show off his acceptance in Massachusetts. Andros informed the colonists of the king's decision that the colony was to be absorbed into the Dominion of New England. Andros did, however, come with a concession. If Connecticut was willing to join the Dominion willingly, the Charter would be left alone. Reluctantly, Connecticut accepted and was entered into the growing Dominion. The Charter was allowed to survive, though for the time, autonomous rule in Connecticut had come to a close. None of the colonies in New England served as more of a warning against the growing risk of royal control than did New Hampshire. New Hampshire during the 1680s was still a very small colony, with a little over 2,000 colonists. However, the events of the late 1670s and early 1680s in New Hampshire would have a dramatic impact on the entirety of New England. Going back a bit, New Hampshire had been embroiled in a controversy regarding royal rule for a few years before the emergence of the Dominion. The problem was that Roger Mason, the descendant of the colony's original proprietor, had spent much of the 1670s fighting to increase his holdings. This included an amount of land that had become disputed between New Hampshire and Massachusetts. Through a court battle, the king decided that Mason had an absolute right to sell the land, which he owned. The problem is that while he controlled the land, the king ruled that he did not give him the right to control the government overseeing that land. In 1679, Charles II made New Hampshire a royal colony, and set Edward Cranfield over as the governor. This was a disaster for Massachusetts. By the time that Cranfield was in the colony, Massachusetts' expansion meant that the colonies had made their way into Mason's territory. Massachusetts was not interested in the land itself, but felt they had a right to enforce the governance over the colonists in the region. The king's ruling, however, was that Mason controlled the land, but held no rights over the government, which meant that Mason's territory where Massachusetts' colonists had settled was now directly under royal rule, with Cranfield at its head. Now, Cranfield was not a popular figure anywhere in New England. During his time in New Hampshire, he clashed with just about everybody there over pretty much everything. The New Hampshire colonists hated him so much that at one point they ended up violently revolting. Cranfield survived the revolt and sent the ringleader, Edward Gove, to England for execution. Before you go and spend too much time worrying about Mr. Gove, it should be noted that he will survive this entire ordeal, he will be pardoned, and he will eventually return to New Hampshire. As for Cranfield, he is going to rule New Hampshire with an iron fist. The Navigation Acts were going to be applied to their fullest extent with absolutely no wiggle room allowed. Liberty of conscience was also not going to be a thing in New Hampshire. Cranfield recognized that the Anglican church was the official church, and he determined that is what people would practice under his watch. Back in Massachusetts, while predictably the faction was appalled by the conditions in New Hampshire, the moderates were also distressed by the absolutist and harsh tendencies of Cranfield. For his part, Cranfield did not sing the praises of Massachusetts either. Cranfield was indeed one of the most outspoken proponents of the king getting more control over his wayward colony. For Cranfield, he was obsessed with the unquestioned submission and obedience from his subjects in New Hampshire. While Edmund Andros could at times walk along the often delicate line, such as in Connecticut, Cranfield had no time or energy for such efforts. The guy was a bull in a china shop, the only option for him was total and complete submission to his rule. Cranfield was universally hated everywhere throughout New England. In New Hampshire, he was seen as being tyrannical and corrupt. In Massachusetts, Cranfield represented the greatest fears that the colony had moving into the 1680s. If Cranfield was what a royal governor looked like, colonists in Massachusetts quickly understood that they were in for the fight of their lives. Cranfield had attacked not just the livelihoods of the colonists in New Hampshire, but he had extended that attack to their very souls. For Massachusetts, what they saw was a system whereby if a royal governor was ever appointed, it was going to be akin to Edward Cranfield. Undoubtedly, then, when Edmund Andros showed up to take control over the Dominion of New England, the colonists in Massachusetts were thinking about Edward Cranfield in New Hampshire and wondering if this is what Andros had in store for them. Conveniently for Edmund Andros, New Hampshire, when presented with the Dominion of New England, offered exactly zero resistance to the idea. Sure, they would have loved a more independent government, but the arrival of Andros and the Dominion meant that Edward Cranfield was gone. As an added bonus, the colonists had figured out that Andros was going to be hanging out all the time down in Boston, as opposed to sitting right on top of them, looking over their every move. In this way for the colonists in New Hampshire, the Dominion meant the ousting of Cranfield, which, all things considered, had to be a mark in the wing column, at least for the moment. Rhode Island has always been a bit of an odd place in our story. Founded by Roger Williams, Rhode Island had quickly become a haven for dissenters from the establishment in Massachusetts and throughout the rest of New England. With people like Williams and Anne Hutchinson, it is the place where all those who could not fit in elsewhere ended up going. Following the execution of the Boston Martyrs, it is where the Quakers took up residence within New England. It has always stood apart from the other colonies and was generally seen as a place where the misfits ended up. The colony was not invited to join the New England Confederation because their beliefs were so vastly different from the rest of New England. Despite this, however, Rhode Island was not spared the destruction of King Philip's war. Providence had been burned. Their economy, like the rest of New England, was in shambles, and they too suffered from the high casualty count of the war. Despite being a refuge, Rhode Island remained relatively small, having a population of only somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000. Rhode Island, like their neighbors in New Hampshire, were not terribly distraught to see the ushering in of the Dominion. Rhode Island was born directly out of hostility from their New England neighbors. To see the Puritan hegemony over the rest of New England broken must have been a satisfying result for them. It's not that there were not Puritans in Rhode Island, but rather one of the bedrock principles of the colony was freedom of religion. It is this that made it such an attractive home for the dissenters and outcasts from the rest of New England. For the Rhode Island colonists, James II's establishment of liberty of conscience was an affirmation of what they had been doing for decades. This is not to say that they wanted to give up their autonomy. However, inclusion into the Dominion would mean that they would finally be integrated into the New England world. Rhode Island, approaching the matter democratically, called for a vote on what to do when they learned about the Quo Aronto regarding their charter. The colony ultimately decided to write back to London and plead to the king that he maintain and protect their religious liberties. The final result would be that much like in Connecticut, Rhode Island would submit to Dominion Control, though its charter was allowed to survive. Seven of the colonists from Rhode Island were brought on board as counselors to Edmund Andros, meaning that Rhode Island was finally brought into the fold with the other New England colonies. Now, when discussing the Dominion of New England, the conversation generally falls onto the colonies that are located in New England, which, yeah, that makes sense. However, it is worth noting that the Dominion would grow to include both New York and East and West Jersey as well. These two colonies would join late in the game, not becoming a part of the Dominion until the spring of 1688. New York was in a bad economic state throughout the 1680s. Then Governor Thomas Donegan struggled to keep New York economically viable as policies from England threatened to undermine him. Many of the problems in New York can trace their lineage back to when James II was still the Duke of York. Recall that James had given huge portions of his holdings away to third parties. This includes the land that will make up East and West Jersey, and notably large amounts of Pennsylvania and the lower counties along the Delaware River to William Penn. The effect of this had been devastating to the economy of New York, and Donegan feared that a depopulation of the colony was imminent. The economic hardships also explain why Donegan had his eyes set on the annexation of Connecticut. Realizing the precarious position of New York and the Jerseys, Donegan was a proponent of the colonies joining the Dominion of New England. For him, it provided a method which would be able to boost the economy of New York. The New York economy would become just another node in a much larger apparatus. This would likewise mean additional sources of revenue and a greater sharing of the debts that New York had accumulated. Beyond that, Donegan recognized that if James II was interested in centralization, it would make sense to the king as well to include New York and the Jerseys in the Dominion. It made government simpler and would allow for a greater defensive front against potential French hostilities. This was further not even a new idea and had been discussed as early as 1685. James II agreed with Donegan and in the spring of 1688, moved Andros to incorporate his old stomping grounds of New York, as well as the two jerseys, into the Dominion of New England. Thomas Donegan, for his part in making such a good suggestion, was handsomely rewarded by being relieved of his post and offered no position in the Dominion government. Donegan, likely as shocked by the snub as he was hurt by it, would remain in Long Island following his removal from power. New York, already a royal colony, was easily integrated into the Dominion. Andrus had been their governor before, and he was welcomed back kindly when he arrived in the colony, where he would invite eight New Yorkers to join his council. Andrus was less popular in the two Jersey colonies. Both East and West Jersey did put up a bit more of a fight, However, Andrus was ultimately able to overcome the problem with little in the way of actual resistance. As was the case in Massachusetts, James II was interested in getting rid of the proprietary charters that had been in existence and replacing them with royal charters. Sure enough, the Jersey's charters would not survive the conversion into the Dominion. However, despite losing their charters, the residents of East and West Jersey did manage to protect their land rights. Unlike in Massachusetts, the colonists in the Jerseys were not going to have to file petitions to retain the land that they had already settled on. With that being said, however, both of the Jerseys were also completely excluded from government. Nobody from either East or West Jersey received a seat on Andros' council. I have spent the last two and a half episodes going through and building up the Dominion of New England, not to mention the other three episodes before that, setting up the conditions under which the Dominion was born. So now that we have the Dominion up and on its feet, it is time to begin the process of tearing it right back down. Before we can start doing that, however, we need to head back across the Atlantic to England and take a quick crash course on the events going on there, because we are now hurtling full speed towards the Glorious Revolution. Now, before we embark on this crash course, remember that the Glorious Revolution is a huge event with a whole lot of moving parts. What I'm going to provide is a simplified version of events, and I mean really, really simplified. Because our real interest is going to be what happens in the American colonies. Though it has been said a thousand times so far in the past few episodes, it is crucial to remember that James II is a Catholic. It had become a main prerogative of James II to reintroduce Catholicism back into England. This, of course, was no easy feat, as anti-Catholic sentiment still ran high throughout the country. This has been the story of English politics since the late 1670s, when Popish plots were breaking out and plans were being hatched to exclude Catholic James from the line of royal succession. As we have discussed previously, Charles II was at least aware of the potential risk that his brother posed for the Anglican Church. While Charles II was opposed to doing anything dramatic, like excluding his brother from the royal line of succession, Charles did take precautions to ensure that James would raise his daughters as proper Anglicans. His daughter Mary, therefore, was not raised with her father's religious beliefs, but at the behest of Charles II was raised as an Anglican, with this protection in place. Should King James II die, his daughter would not reintroduce the Catholic Church and Anglicanism would be safe in England. This concession meant that upon James II's ascension to the throne, there would not need to be talk of any risk of a Catholic dynasty forming, as James II was without a son and the Anglican Mary would succeed him. Thankfully for us, James II was a smart enough man to not do anything crazy following the death of Charles II and go have another kid and just blow this whole thing up. On June the 10th, 1688, James II's wife, not to be confused with his daughter, Queen Mary, gave birth to James Francis Edwards. Just like that, the young James jumped to the very top of the line of succession, passing his Anglican sisters. With Charles II dead, there was no reason to raise the child as an Anglican. Suddenly, the assurances against a Catholic dynasty evaporated. For the Anglicans inside of England, who had already been stretched thin through the policies of James II, they were no longer looking at just a brief period of having a Catholic monarch that they would need to endure. They were now looking at the very real prospect of a full Catholic revival and Catholic dynasty. On the matter of religion, James II was not going softly on his declaration of indulgence during 1688 either. He was in fact doubling down on his efforts and decided to require that all Anglican bishops read it from the pulpit, a move that was both alienating and infuriating to them. More specifically, a group of seven bishops objected to the requirement of having to read the Declaration. The complaint of these seven bishops is that the Declaration was made illegal through a prior Act of Parliament and was an overreach of royal authority. The King, dealing with the problem of the seven bishops, decided to go ahead and make everything that much worse by throwing them into the Tower of London, where they would await trial for libel and sedition. Just like that, with one fell swoop, James II had just confirmed the worst fears of all the Anglicans inside of England, that in fact the Anglican Church was now in real danger of being replaced again by the Catholics. James II had made abundantly clear to everybody both in London and back in the colonies, that his true prerogative was the restoration of the Catholic faith inside of England. This is to say nothing of the fact that since taking the throne, James had gone out of his way replacing Anglican positions in the government with his Catholic buddies. The case of the seven dissenting bishops demonstrated just how much danger the Anglican Church was in. However, despite all the outwardly signs that things were going great for James II, After all, he had just had a son and was doing all that he could to reintroduce Catholicism and put Catholicism back into a position of power inside of England. He was about to be dealt a devastating blow of his own. On June 30th, those seven bishops that he had thrown into the Tower of London were acquitted. Just like that, everything that he had been building up was drawn into question. His very power and authority was now very much in question of just how far it extended. It is likewise critical to note how fast events were moving here. When the bishops were acquitted on June the 30th, we are just two weeks removed from the birth of James II's son, the likely future Catholic monarch of England. Even before the events of June 1688, James had become increasingly brazen and really had stopped trying to hide his intentions altogether. He had written to his daughter Mary and tried to convince her to convert to Catholicism, which was just more proof of his overall intentions. James's daughter Mary was not interested in converting to Catholicism, which is going to be important in just a moment. Mary was born on April 30th, 1662. In 1677, Mary was wed to William III of Orange, a prince from the Principality of Orange. William of Orange's mother, also named Mary, was the daughter of Charles I. Importantly, William of Orange, beginning in 1672, was also the stadholder of the Netherlands. If you are wondering what a stadholder is, it is the highest executive in the Netherlands. Well, not exactly a monarch, it would have come with similar powers and control. So, as a quick refresher in case I lost you there, James II's daughter, Mary, was an Anglican. Mary was married to William of Orange, the chief executive in the Netherlands. In June of 1688, James II had a son who was to be raised Catholic and became the heir to the English throne, much to the chagrin of a whole lot of Anglicans. This brings our story back to June of 1688, in a month that would ultimately be very, very important for the reign of James II. It is in June of 1688 that a group of nobles decided that something needed to be done, or everything that they had built over the previous century and a half would be for naught. What these seven men did is write what would become known as the Invitation to the Prince of Orange. The letter lays out the hardships under James II, and invites William of Orange to come to England and take the crown. The seven men encouraged him to work quietly in order to maintain the element of surprise, However, they made clear that no time should be lost in preparation should William agree to the plan. Though some more convincing wouldn't end up being necessary, William of Orange was indeed interested in the prospect of becoming the King of England. Next time, we are going to pick up right where we are leaving off. As events would begin to rock England, tremors would be felt across the Atlantic back in New England we are going to head back to New England and specifically Massachusetts and look at how parallel internal pressures will begin to stress the Dominion of New England. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks, that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we will begin to watch the screws come out of the Dominion of New England as it all begins to fall apart.